Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, a horror video game podcast and proud member of Bloody Disgusting's Bloody FM podcast network. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bow. And this week marks the return of our monthly segment, The Inventory, Safe Room's review show, in which we discuss our time with a handful of newly released AAA and indie horror titles that left an impression on us, for better or worse. But before we get to Dead Space, which, you know, we can't not talk about this month, as it is uh, certainly the biggest horror release of the month, end of the new year, uh, we have several indie horror titles to talk about that uh, left an impression on us. And, you know, more favorably than uh, not, but I think we're going to dive into some that hopefully people have either heard of or, you know, we can expose them to something that maybe fell off their radar because, you know, it's seemingly uh, every single day there's something new being released on any number of platforms. But uh, I would love to start with Children of Silent Town by Elf Game Works and mm-hmm. Luna 2 Studio. Children of Silent Town is a point-and-click dark adventure game that follows Lucy, a girl growing up in a village deep in a forest inhabited by monsters. Lucy must navigate relationships and the threat that looms just outside the borders of her entire world. So this was one that came on my radar pretty quickly uh, at the beginning of the new year. Mm. Um, just from, you know, that art style, I think that's really what jumped out to me right away. You know, yeah, absolutely. Uh, a conversation that we've had on this show a lot is, you know, horror games that are accessible to more than just, you know, adults, right? Yeah. And oftentimes the stigma that gets falsely attributed to horror games that are not primarily targeted for adults, right? The idea that, oh, well, those can't really be real horror because it's not (laughs) scary or the primary focus is not about blood and guts and all these things, you know, things that we uh, do our best to kind of dispel, right? Um, And I think Children of Silent Town, for my money, was a great example of taking a horror approach that is, you know, accessible to not only kids, young adults, but I think also, clearly, uh, adults, in uh, yeah. its kind of world building and at the same time presenting puzzles and whatnot that, you know, maybe uh, didn't leave me scratching my chin as much as some other puzzle games that I've played or point and click adventure games. But at the same time, I found there was a great logic to it uh, in terms of, you know, it being applicable to the protagonist, Lucy herself, you know, her sensibilities as a kid, but also there's this kind of like goofy creative flair to it that, you know, goes along with children's imaginations yeah. and whatnot. Um, how did you find Children of Silent Town? Yeah, I, you know, as a concept alone, I liked the idea anyway because you know, just wood horror in the woods, great stuff. You know, a bit of folklore in there, all for it. Love that stuff, and you know, that's good enough on its own. But I think having it from the perspective of a child sort of gives it something a little extra. Yeah, you know, and and it does, and not in kind of that condescending way that some games can be like when they're in that way where you know they're trying to prey on the vulnerability of being a child um this was more about the the wonder of innocence and curiosity as a child to go exploring that which would be terrifying for the adults and that's the way it should be you know that's really good it kind of reminds you of a few games in that regard i think and even some sort of other media you know where you, Think of Coraline, I mean, being the most obvious example, you know, of like young, you know, young girl happens upon all this stuff through, you know, sheer curiosity. Um, yeah, so as a point and click puzzle game, as you said, generally it's quite straightforward. It has some nice little bit interactions with like the townsfolk. Um, you, you know, 
do kiddie things with other kids, you know, playing and singing songs and stuff like that. Um, it's really fun to sort of get into this world and like its own little mythology and really to sort of investigate that to the point it actually kind of makes the puzzling a bit of an annoyance when it comes up sometimes that you, you kind of want it to be done. Um, not all the time. And I think what has to be said about the puzzling is there's some really inventive sort of ideas for what they do. And some of the puzzles are very much about do all this to get this very arbitrary item. And, you know, which is important in itself, but it makes it kind of hilarious and absurd that you're just doing all this <laughs> to get like some random little trinket and that doesn't really matter to anything else. Um, but yeah, that just feels again, very in keeping with the kind of kids get left to do with all this stuff sort of thing. And it, it works really well. I was, um, very impressed with that stuff, but yeah, I almost wish it was more of a, an explorationary sort of game and the puzzles weren't such a, focus for me um because I, I really did enjoy the story of it and i think that really kept me going through it um yeah, but like i said it's not to say the puzzles are bad or anything like that they just don't tend to stand out enough to matter uh in terms of like keeping you engaged in a way that feels connected to the story in the way that it should um but yeah, i really quite dug what the game was doing there's just um a descent into darkness that isn't you know, really too deep dark, but it's, it's exciting in the sort of um, sense of, you know, as a child and the vulnerability that is there, naturally, it makes perfect sense. Um, it's, I, I like him to think it has a creepy charm, I think is the best way to put it, you know. Yeah, Which absolutely. is where the Coraline thing comes in, you know, as a good reference point for visual style. While nothing alike, you know, in, in terms of what they're doing, they have this underlying thing of an innocence, a wonder, a beauty mixed with like something that's beneath the surface and a bit unnerving and weird and off. So yeah, it, it, like I said, it's not going to be a point and click classic, but um, it's, it's an engaging bit of folklore slice horror and yeah, quite enjoyed it. I'm curious, what did you think of the singing mechanic that's introduced in the game pretty quickly on. I mean, this, I think, would be one of the more defining elements of the game, but also I think that it's the best representation of what this game does to separate itself from some other, you know, young adult dark fantasy type games um, in the sense that, you know, when she, the character wants to get information out of some characters that are not willing to, you know, divulge that, you have to have this moment where you basically have to repair a memory of theirs um, or repair the fabric of something that they know about for them. And so what that does is it opens up this little puzzle mini game where you are quite literally stitching together the memory back together for them. And so you have this, you know, a piece of fabric basically, and you have to run this pattern that goes through buttons and, you know, you can't go through your piece of string more than once. So that way you can get to the center of the memory to repair it. And then you can have your progression. Um, how did you find that? And did you think that that was, um, you know, a unique trait, I'll say, of the kind of standard point-and-click fare of this game. Yeah, I mean, while it is basically dressing up something that's been established in other puzzle games, you know, we, you know but it, it's probably the most thematically consistent sort of thing they do in there in terms of puzzles, which it really feels like a connection, um, this sort of otherworldly charm that the game has. 
to have something that's a bit surreal in terms of its puzzle like that, it, it makes perfect sense because it has that storybook vibe and that almost adds to it in a way, even though it's not like traditionally storybook sort of style. Um, yeah, so I think, yeah, it does bring some sort of distinction there. Does that mechanic grow more path? You know, I only played the first two hours of the game, but does that grow any more than, you know, just making it more of a difficult, uh, you know, series of puzzles? Is there any kind of expanding on that or not really? Not really, no. And again, that comes back to what I was saying, where you just start getting a bit bored of having to do things like that. You know, it's like, not to say they're bad puzzles, just that, you know, at that point, you're like, no, I just want to know what the story is. I get this. This was fun. This was clever. There's slight variations, but nothing drastic. But, you know, I think it doesn't outstay its welcome in that regard. Once it's done, it's done. And, you know, you, you don't really have to worry about it that often. So, yeah, it, it's neither here nor there, I suppose, if you're going for it. You know, it's a uh, an approachable puzzle game that takes place in, uh, you know, this young adult horror world that uh, I think stands apart from, you know, those yeah. types of experiences that people are typically expecting where, you know, it either leans too far into the horror or it leans too far into, you know, the, the watering down of horror, if you will. It kind of feels like a good common ground place. And, yes. you know, that art style alone, I think, will, uh, you know, probably push some people that are on the fence one way or the other, um, just because I was really taken with that. And I liked how mm. it kind of had this almost Tim Burton-esque kind of uh, design with some of the characters. You know, they've got these gaunt faces and they're very like pale and you know while what they're dealing with in the moments especially in those early hours that i played is not you know overtly horror related at the mm. same time it really does get across the sense that like these are people that are growing up in a dangerous area that there's this ever looming threat um even if they themselves you know the kids don't truly know the extent of that but nice. yeah that was i think that was a good starting point for the year but uh i really want to get into chasing static by Headwear Game. Uh, mm. This was a game that was released last year on PC and was just ported to Xbox. Um, was it also ported to PlayStation? Yeah, that's why I played okay. it. Okay, cool. So this has now been ported to um, this generation consoles and Chasing Static is a adventure game. You play as Chris Selwood, who has just laid their father to rest, who becomes lost in the Welsh countryside, eventually taking refuge in a lone roadside calf. Um, but after a shocking supernatural event, Chris ventures into the wilderness where he discovers a research facility that sends him on a search for answers to the tragic events that transpired before his arrival. Um, so as I said, this is an adventure game. Um, I would compare it to the likes of We've All Gone to the Rapture, which you know people are, will label as a, a walking simulator. Mm. This one has a little bit more interactivity, though, and for my money this is the type of adventure game that I want to play when you're dealing in that realm because it gives the player a little more involvement, interactivity, but also with a game such as this, you know, you're exploring, it's somewhat of an open world, right? It's more yeah. open of an environment, but you are contained to these, you know, three to four zones. But it's a story that doesn't necessarily force you to investigate one mystery over the other, right? You kind of have free reign, um, because everything is tied to this mysterious facility that you find. Mm. Um, and so basically you get to use this new sort of technology to discover and trigger these ghostly apparitions that play out these basically small vignettes yeah. um, that give the player clues to these events that led to whatever catastrophic event transpired uh, before you showed up. 
Um, you know, what jumped out to me initially during its development was, again, you know, this was released when we were doing uh, starting out with like Horror Bites, I believe. Yeah. So like that lo-fi poly style really jumped out to me. But in actually getting to sit down and play the game, you know, it has really fantastic sound design, I found. Um, it really nails this Welsh bleak kind of atmosphere of wandering the back countryside on a stormy night type of a thing. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to get your take on it and we can dive into uh, the mechanics a little bit more. Yeah. So when I saw that, you know, it was inspired by 80s sci-fi horror and contemporary surrealist cinema, a lot of it clicked more with me, you know, in the moment was, ah, okay, yeah, this makes a lot more sense now. Um, Because there are bits of this in terms of like the technical quality of the game that make you question if it's just you know, corner cutting or if maybe it's part of the experience and you can lean either way. I don't think with that, I think when you first find, for instance, you know, that bunker area, um, this is, you've been wandering around these sort of, you know, very sparse sort of, you know, Welsh countryside bits and, you know, they're very sparse and very low poly, but you get into that bunker and the detail in it is like, surprisingly good you know like that but as you go into the door of that bunker there's a tree sticking out of the ground from like underneath your feet and it's like seems a bit sloppy and it's like but then it's just you keep getting these back and forth with that where the quality is high here and not so high there and i think maybe that's part of the whole surrealist thing of like you know, taking you out the moment and it was you know something that made me think you know about the game straight away but um, before you even get to that bit, you know, the whole, you know, prelude to that with the lead up of going to, you know, driving the car, getting, uh, tinkering around with bits in the car, going to that cafe and it's, you know, quiet and closed apart from one, you know, you know waitress that's there. And you have to, you can do a whole mechanic of actually serving yourself a cup of coffee and like that. And it's, you know, you just sit there drinking a cup of coffee while conversation goes on. It's like, I like that, you know, that little um, touch of just letting things play out without rushing to get there. And yeah, it really does respect, you know, that it, um, you know, drawing out that story, you know, which is a common theme, I suppose, with shorter horror games where in order to make that sort of um, impact hit a bit more, you want to sort of have a bit of a preamble, a bit of lead going into it to extend your playtime as well. Uh, and I'm sure for many developers when it comes to Steam, get past that two hour mark, <laughs> the refund mark. Right. Um, you know, not on purpose necessarily, but you know, if you can keep the game engaging beyond that point and make it past two hours, you're not just having someone go, oh, it was the right refund, you know, on an hour and 58 minutes or something. So yeah, I think it does a really good job of engaging you early on with the kind of pace it's setting and then just starts slowly doling out little things that are new, you know, like little hints as to what you're going to be doing a given um, where you can't really understand what it is. And then you do go to the bunker and all these other stuff, bits and bobs happen. And yeah, it will suddenly becomes really clear. And it's, yeah, beyond that, it starts getting interesting, really interesting. Well, I think that that initial segment that is very, you know, linear is important to just ground you in that world yeah. and what you sort of begin to prepare the player for what they should expect because then it is quite literally non-linear in how they mm. choose to pursue 
the different investigation sites, right? And so that comes into play with the frequency displacement device that they use. So basically, if you take out this device, you start to pick up a signal. And when you go to the signal, it unlocks one of these ghostly yeah. vignettes that I mentioned, which further, you know, either reveals an item that you need to progress, because the whole idea is that you're going to go to these three different sites where this mysterious experiments were being run, and you basically have to like reboot the systems that are there. And, you know, those vignettes, I thought, well, I feel I could have used maybe a few more of them. At the same time, though, the atmosphere is so strong that when they play out, mm -hmm. um, I just found them to be really very spooky in the way that, you know, a ghost story should be. Yeah. Right. And they are just vague enough that, you know, by the time you get to the very end and all is revealed, you don't really know until you have that reveal. Right. And I think that they do a good job of kind of trailing along this mystery um, for the, you know, for something that's nonlinear, it could have been, you know, we're going to present this as a nonlinear game, but then, you know, pieces of the story yeah. either don't line up or maybe one vignette reveals too much or it's tonally very different from uh, another one that it kind of like throws things off. But I played this twice originally, you know, when it was released and then this week in prep for this and purposefully went to the different sites uh, in a different order than I did initially and you know, it was the same type of thing where I was just like really, really invested in the atmosphere and the mystery itself. Um, enjoyed that. Um, I got to say, you know, it definitely, let's see, I suppose this has the similar issue to some of these adventure games where I wanted as strong as the atmosphere was, I could have used, I suppose, a few more unique landmarks. Mm. You know, when you're dealing with these wide open areas, especially in that initial section, I'm kind of like running in circles sometimes when I'm trying to get my bearings and yes. all these things. And I was like, without giving the player, you know, a map or this massive, you know, arrow pointing them in the right direction, which would have broken that uh, atmosphere for me. At the same time, giving few more unique locations would have made that traversal a little more natural mm. uh, per se. But, you know, once you get a handle on the size of the world, it's nothing that, uh, that people can't handle. Yeah. And I said, finding out, yeah, what the inspiration was behind you know, the start of the game made more sense with that sort of bewildering sort of open world bit they have, you know, because you could very easily attribute it to just being like, didn't really have the budget to continue making anything that really obviously signposted things. But just it, it's easy to get in that mindset, you know, when you're playing so many games. You know, I know that personally I feel this anyway. And you get such a... You know, whip, kind of whiplash from small games that don't explain very much to big games that tell you everything every five seconds you know it's like and it's maddening you know and when we get on to talk about dead space it's a, just it's a nice example of like a happy medium and yeah so here i was let's say like you a bit bewildered by that bit and felt it kind of hurt the pacing when you're not really expecting that but yeah, I think in hindsight, with that context, I think it, it makes perfect sense that the story it's telling and the fact that it is basically saying, do do this the way you want to do this from now on. And, you know, I like that. And it, the fact that it is so freeing for a game of its size, you know, it's, um, it makes it very hard to pinpoint it. You know, when, when we've covered so many small horror games, you know, at this point to play something like this where you can kind of see like the connective tissue and inspirations in some ways 
But in others, you're like, wow, this feels like the scope's bigger. Yeah. And, but if you really sort of look into it, it's like, you can see the smoke and mirrors of it working really well. And like that, you know, it's not me trying to sound smug and smile like, aha, I figured out your tricks. You know, it's me saying, I like the ambition to which that they could make this game and make it feel this big in scope and feel like you are in a world where a story is being told and it can still not make sense and still feel odd and disconcerting. It is um, a really interesting game in that regard. Because I think there's um, much to be said about that atmosphere that is made. Yeah. Um, I'm curious without getting into specifics, uh, given that, you know, it's like a two hour <laughs> game at the most. Um, how did you find that story reveal at the end? Did you find that that was, um, you know, this kind of natural conclusion to the story that was being made? Did you find that it kind of justified the exploratory uh, nature of, you know, your two hours leading up to that? Again, without, you know, with that context, yes. You know, I think knowing what the influence points are really do make that end, end point work. But yeah, I could see how if you're not sort of taking that into it and you don't really have anything to base that on, you might look at that end and then... Um, not sure that really works for me and was, you know, relative to the amount of effort I put into this, blah, blah, blah. You know, it, but again, that does feel like something of a modern poison in the brain thing where, you know, it's like many modern movies make you think that, oh, well, the story's got to be this way. And many money, you know, if you go online anywhere, people will tell you, oh, they will tell you films off for not explaining things well enough. And it's nice to occasionally just go, who the fuck cares? You know, and just like, <laughs> it, it makes sense in its own special way. And yeah, like I said, with that extra context, it really does. You know, and I think it's to be applauded. You know, I think we've covered a few games in Horror Bites that have had that sort of vibe, you know, where it, they feel a bit more abstract and there's a bit of that here. And I, I really do applaud developer for that. That's kind of how I went into this game. I used my, uh, you know, the horror bite side of my brain to just kind of like appreciate what was on display here and how it was packaged, right? I think even mm. in terms of the mechanics, like this doesn't have a great deal of like chin scratching puzzles in it or anything. But I will say that, you know, the item management was, you know, uh, I suppose adequate, but more importantly, like there's little touches of personality in there. Like instead of the traditional save mechanic, you have a camera and you literally take a picture of the environment and then that serves as your save file. Yeah, like, I love that. Little okay. touches like that I liked. Also like the fast traveling that you unlock throughout the different zones. It takes you to this sort of like void world that was reminiscent of, I thought, like Evil Within 2. When mm. you're walking through this pitch black world, but then you just see a computer or a, uh, a monitor there and then you have to, you know, punch in the different uh, location you want to go to and you pick up the phone and then you instantly transport yeah. there. Like... Just little touches like that, I thought, gave this personality and kind of circumvented perhaps some of the more traditional examples of those mechanics, which, you know, they're not revolutionary mechanics or anything, but they are presented in a way that's unique, which is what I can appreciate. And I think that, you know, again, for as short of an experience as this is, it does leave a mark that was uh, notable. Yeah. And also, you know, the developer headwear games is as announced i think last summer like hollow body which is a spiritual successor to this game mm. but with a sort of 
more of an influence of survival horror of the early 2000s. You know, they, they cite Silent Hill 2, 3, Rule of Rose, that sort of thing. And, you know, early screens of that look really promising. And I like that. It just, the idea that it go on to do a survival horror with that sort of vibe and idea. Yeah, that, that, I'm really into that. So I'm glad I finally got to play this because I said I've had it on PC for ages. Consoles and this episode were the perfect excuses to you know, <laughs> finally bite the bullet and see because I'd seen it from many people I know who like horror games and sort of professing their love for this and being enthusiastic about it. So yeah, I was very pleased to have gotten around to playing this finally. And I was happy to have the uh, the chance to dive into it. But mm. uh, why don't you introduce uh, the next game before we uh, take a break and then chat about Dead Space? Because this was one. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to play, so I can't wait to hear your thoughts on it. <laughs> yeah, this, this is just one of those that came up in the review pile, and I was like, yeah, why not? I'll try stuff like that. Um, so this is Do Luck and Fade, Dance of Death, or Dance and Death, Do Luck and Fade, depending on which way you read it. Um, officially, it's called the other, the latter, but um, in all images for the game, it seems to be Do Luck and Fade, Dance of Death. That's possibly the biggest mystery. Um, so this is a semi point and click adventure sort of thing so it's more like um telltale style adventure you know what i mean so yeah, there are point and click aspects but you move your character around with the sticks that sort of thing um and it involves the pair of arthurian legends you know lancelot de luck and morgana le fay um you know who are immortal beings and are living through eras beyond their own and this puts them in the victorian era london uh, where they go to investigate the killings of Jack the Ripper. So, you know, instantly that's like really cool. And they team up with, you know, a local girl, you know, who's got some skin in the game, so to speak, and, you know, go in to investigate this murder system. And so, you know, Lancelot is an immortal human. Uh, Morgana has been transformed into a dog, basically. So she's a talking <laughs> dog uh, in this whole thing. And yeah, it does have a very cool vibe of like you know, that sort of early broken sword, but slightly 3D, which is cool. You know, the Victorian London stuff, it looks really nice. Um, there's a lot of good background. Um, there's a cool switch mechanic between characters where you just you know, use different characters for different things. So like Morgana can talk to animals and find out their sort of ideas on what's happened in a you know, in a murder or a situation and the animals have their own weird way of speaking. So it kind of uh, offers a little bit of hilarity in that. Um, yeah, so exploring Victorian London and having, you know, the whole real life crime sort of thing, which is always a, a bit of a store, yeah, sore spot in terms of getting right. Because, you know, it's, it's something that's obsessed about enough as it is, you know, Jack the Ripper. You know, to true. the point, and then you have modern, you know, true crime fans who really obsessive stuff that you kind of, in some ways, you'd be like, I get it, but leave it alone, sort of thing. And, you know, this is like the origin of that in a way. Um, but I don't know, there's a lot about this that is very period accurate, um, which is to mean that, you know, there is racism, homophobia, et cetera, misogyny, blah, 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 um, which, is dealt with fairly well, I might say. Yeah, you know, it's as well as it can be. I think the writing itself and the voice acting would be really good in this game. Um, but there's lots of inconsistencies with this, you see, because for everything that's good with this game, there's something 
that sort of counterpoints it to make it feel a bit wrong. So I just mentioned the writing being quite good for what this is, but then actual writing, like text, is misspelled in loads of places throughout the game, which you could say, fair enough, you've just made a game, blah, blah, blah. This game came out in 2019 on PC, um, has only just come to PlayStation. So it's not like it couldn't have been time to sort of fix those little mistakes and little things like that sort of straight away put you off. The character animation style is very stilted, very, you know, very, I mean, even if you were comparing this to the classic point and click adventures, when they did sort of make that awkward jump to 3D, this feels worse in that regard, um, which really doesn't help the you know, character designs, which I think are quite nice, you know, quite well done. They just don't get the animation that sort of goes with them. And, you know, for, for, for the good voice performances than this, and they have some, like, genre stalwarts in here that really would work, and... You, you do obviously get then the other side of the voice acting, which didn't obviously didn't get the the budget, and really feels a bit painful by comparison when you have these people who are established actors, really good at voice roles and know what they're doing, and then you get the lesser half of that. It, it just so it makes this game very difficult to like, and I think its biggest crime is that with that animation problem, is it's a really really slow game. Like the walking in this, the animations and going places, everything is slow. Get, you know, lining the character up with a point of interest, difficult, makes it very, very hard. It really does. And <laughs> all that is really sort of pushing you through is like the way it looks generally in still form, which, you know, is more traditional sort of point and click and the story, which is quite interesting. Um, I mean, having a fantasy sort of spin on Jack the Ripper. Is cool, you know. The second of which I found out this week, you know, when I was talking to you before <laughs> here about you know the Frogwares used to you know did a Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper sort of game years ago, and yeah, it's having that sort of softens up the you know the slightly grotty nature of using true crime for entertainment. But it's just, it would be great if it would sort of been refined in the time since it's been out on PC, which you know people complained about that on there about many of the same issues I saw afterwards. I think it's, if you like a lot of that sort of stuff, you know, like the sort of Jack the Ripper stuff and having a sort of Victorian era thing with a bit of a fantasy element to it, I think it's an interesting way of portraying it. Just to go in pre-warned that it is a slow, stodgy game that often sort of shows its shortcomings front and centre, which is a real shame. Yeah, but... um, that's the nature of the game. They can't all be winners. <laughs> that's, yeah, you know, that's a shame to hear because it's one of the things where it's like you're juggling the idea of a really interesting spin on a story or approaching a historical event for, with this fictitious element that can, you know, open up some creative avenues for storytelling or character design in these things. But when the gameplay gets in the way of, appreciating those things or, you know, as you've mentioned now, some, uh, you know, grammatical errors and just in general, maybe some performances. Um, it's a shame that when you see the potential for something, but then the game aspect of the game gets in the way of truly exploring that in a way that could be, you know, uh, enjoyed by 
people that, you know, the masses, let's say. Yeah. Uh, people that aren't going to put up with a fair amount of jank to get to the elements that are great or, or good for that matter. Um, so that's a shame, like you said, but at the same time, maybe uh, I'll check it out on PC at some point. You know, that's what Steam sales are for after all, right? This is it. And I'm sure you could, there's something out there to mod it to make it a bit faster and more responsive. Uh, but that's by T-Clipper Games, by the way, and that's out on PS4, Xbox One, and PC. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for our smaller uh, releases for the month. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, it's Dead Space time. And we are back from our break, and it is finally time to talk about the highly anticipated remake of Dead Space from Motive Studio. Uh, We, of course, chatted about the original Dead Space 2008s. Uh, from Visceral Games earlier this month. And I'll be honest, I was, of course, looking forward to the remake. I was curious to see if I was going to have Dead Space fatigue, let's call it. (laughs) After just running through the original, I was, you know, based on what we had seen, what we had heard and read about the remake, you know, there were indicators this was more than just, you know, a new coat of paint. Um, But at the same time, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, is this going to land for me the same way if I hadn't just replayed the original? And, you know, thankfully, I could not be more in love with uh, the remake in more <laughs> ways than one, which we'll get into. Um, of course, you know, the remake is going to follow the same narrative as the original, as once again, the player is in the very stompy boots of engineer Isaac Clark, whose routine repair mission takes a hellish turn when his vessel crashes into the planet cracker, the Ishimura. Once aboard the Ishimura, of course, there are these monsters that regenerate from the corpses of the of the crew, known as necromorphs, which Isaac must fight his way through to find his girlfriend, Nicole, and anybody else that's alive on board. Um, so you actually reviewed this game for mm. PlayStation Universe, and you gave it the very high praise of a 9 out of 10, stating it is a triumph. You actually said that twice in the review. I yeah, and I, I even called out my own corniness at mention. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. You know, so. I'm not just gassing you up because you're my co-host. You <laughs> called it a triumph twice. And so I would love to uh, let you begin by summarizing, you know, how this remake is a triumph. You know, we, we've talked about remakes, of course, plenty of times in the mm. past. Uh, a very, very high bar was set by the Resi 2 remake. So I can't wait to hear more about, uh, you know, how the Dead Space remake maybe surpasses that high bar that was previously set. Yeah, I think I, I put it early on in my review that, um, you know, Motive has knocked out of the park into a neighboring house where presumably an incredibly weary middle-aged man in a suit has stomped it into oblivion. And <laughs> they have, I mean, I've talked at length, you know, when we talked about Resident Evil 2 remake you know, and my trepidation with that and because of my love of the original and how much it changes things and like how I hate that they change the alligator bit and stuff like that and I think it really helped that we just played Dead Space you know and, and the original and you know I found new respect for it for the game it was because coming into this it made it made turning around a review in five days easier I'll say that um, <laughs> when you just played many of the key sections of this but also helped me see the new stuff all so much clearer, you know, and having played Dead Space 2 in that time again, you know, and seeing what that, you know, this remake brings from that game into this one. It's like, you know, your, your on point meme on the uh, safe room uh, <laughs> tweet is there, you know, having the kinesis uh, stuff is brilliant, you know, just because uh, that's the one thing I would have wanted to bring you know, from the, the second game. 
Uh, you know, when I went back to Dead Space and found that I couldn't do it, I was like, was it always not there? <laughs> so, mm, it's like, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it, but yeah, so it's, it's basically, you know, everything that was so cool, fancy about Resident Evil 2's remake has been applied here, but arguably done so much better, you know, because there's so much more respect for the source material, which is, um, when we were talking on the Dead Space episode about the original game, and we sort of was went on a mini rant about worried about what EA might do, given their treatment of Visceral, and couldn't be more wrong. Couldn't be happy to be more wrong because it really does just feel like that. You know, well, I know here's the game. Do what you will with it, and make they've made such sensible decisions with what to do with this you know in terms of taking what Dead Space was leaving much of it the same making it look prettier some downsides on that we'll get to and then making it feel more modern with these tiniest things that when you were playing it in a week you would say if this was made now I would prefer if it did this or it did that and every one of those things that went from my head is there you know it's like you know my Criticism of the original game being like it's a hub, you know, with a bunch of levels doesn't apply anymore. You know, it feels like a living, breathing, dead place. Um, <laughs> but you know, up there with like, you know, Sevastopol Station from Alien Isolation and like Talos One from Prey, you know, in terms of being like this big space in space and really being engaging in that way. And it, it was just mad to just keep playing. Though, you know, initially it's a bit weird having just played the original again to sort of go into it. And it kind of feels a bit loose and shiny and you know, a bit iffy about it. But the deeper I went into it, the more it just started opening up and impressing me in much the same way that Resi 2's remake did, where it's like, okay, I see where the extra layers are in what you're doing here. And... Yeah, this is a, I mean, there's so much we're going to get into, I'm sure, in terms of the, these changes. But, you know, as a general sort of roundup of this, it's the benchmark for horror game remakes. Yeah, it's like Resident Evil 4 needs to worry. You know, Blue Team needs to worry with Silent Hill 2. Um, but then this should also be the confidence boost that everyone needs because I pointed out so many times, you know, None of these remakes are being made by the people who made the games, apart from the Silent Hill 2 one, ironically, yeah, which has still got many of the original team involved. And yet, you know, Dead Space, Resident Evil, being made by entirely new studios with a level of respect for what the stuff is. But this just feels like next level in terms of like, it is everything it could have been and I wanted it to be. Um I don't know, it just, it puts it more, you know, I've shifted my opinion of the trilogy so much in, in, in the last few weeks because of this. And, you know, this just sort of tips the balance further because there's so much to like, you know, there's just so much stuff that works here that I can't wait for it to be applied to the second game and the th- and to see the massive course correction they could make with the third game, you know, it, and... Yeah maybe even make a damn new one at some point. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's everything I could have ever hoped for. Yeah, really. And I'm very impressed 
motive I've done. I would love to start by running down, you know, we're going to run down some of the features that have either been changed or amended, but I think we should begin with, um, and it's not just because it was something I was worried about the most, but something that we did talk about heavily in our episode uh, about the original was some trepidation about handling now including lines for Isaac, who was originally a silent protagonist and now has a quite bit to say uh, during the remake, right? And I think that that was something we were both very, very concerned about how they would handle, you know, how they were going to portray Isaac Clark. Granted, it helps they're having Gunnar Wright return to provide voiceover, who, of course, voiced Isaac in uh, Dead Space 2 and 3. So at least they had the wherewithal to be like, we're going to keep the voice work for Isaac in the family, right? We're going to have him come back. But at the same time, we were more concerned about the portrayal of Isaac and how that would line up with 2. But also, you know, would they get carried away with him talking far too much to the point that his including of lines <laughs> becomes a hindrance, uh, let's say. And, you know, our buddy Herc, who runs at Horror Visuals, uh, sent us a question where he was asking, does Isaac having more lines and more personality in general affect the game in a bad way? Um, and, you know, I think I speak for both of us when we say it absolutely does not affect the game in a bad way. It feels like they have included bits of dialogue for Isaac at the most opportune moments of when he would have some commentary on what's happening, right? Granted, he was a silent protagonist in the original game. And if they had included lines that just felt out of place, or it felt like he was almost trying to steal the show per se, um, that would have been a very awkward transition into a fully voiced Isaac for the remake. And here, I found that characters interact with him at the most appropriate of times. He comments at the most appropriate of times. They don't feel like they have to go on these long monologues with him that kind of are trying to establish him as more of a central figure than he actually is, right? Or something along those lines. They don't try to rework the identity of him. At the end of the day, he is the best man for the job because of his skill set. It's not necessarily he's this amazing tactician or this amazing strategic uh, figure, right? It's more so that he is this guy that is taking on this burden, uh, more than likely uh, not wanting to have to undertake all of these things, but he at least feels like he is naturally reacting to things. He doesn't have to have this kind of like quippy approach to everything. He doesn't have to have a smart comment for everything, which at the end of the day would probably downplay or undercut the horror elements of this, right? If he's got something clever to say every time a xenomorph jumps out of a vent or whatnot. Um, And I think that they do a good job at least of making him feel more involved while at the same time not allowing him to distract from the storytelling of other characters, but more importantly, you know, the world of uh, Dead Space. Yeah, I mean, when he does use humor, it's in a very gallows humor sort of way. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, very self-depreciating sort of yeah, stuff like that. Pretty much when everyone tells him he's made a bad idea, he's like, yep, yeah, I fucking know. It's like, <laughs> it's like, but what else do we do? You know, sort of thing. And I love that about him. Um I think what's great about it, again, this goes back to the respect to the original is to the original games is what, you know, when he did speak, um, is it feels comfortably in line with those sequels in terms of how the character is and will become while stripping back on what he is at that point, you know, when he isn't affected by the marker, when he is just a bit naive, but you get this cool sort of backstory to him a bit more, you know, about like his past and why he's kind of connected with all this. And I like that a lot, you know, because that extra context that he puts across 
you know, without it being, you know, in a very sort of casual sort of matter of fact way when people talking about his relationship with Nicole and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it would, that sort of stuff will feed into the sequels better now. You know, it makes the story feel whole, you know, and I like that so much. Um, but yeah, it just, Gunner Wright just is such a casually natural, sort of every man sort of voice, you know, and I like mm. that about it. He does just know how to put across this sort of, you know, average Joe thing, you know, in, in the way that is, okay, the Hollywood idea of what an everyday Joe, mm. Joe sort of guy is, but it works. And, and I think back then, you know, in the first game, silent for a reason, I think part homage to the Half-Life, part, you know, budget, I'd imagine. But, there were points in that game where it just felt very forced that he um did not answer, you know? And it's like, why would he not answer here? Mm-hmm. It's like, why would he have no say in what's going on? It just made him feel like he was this sort of sentient badass who just gets on with it, which was less absurd in the time of Half-Life, I might add. But here it's like, no, you can't really do that anymore. But yeah, as you said, the balance of that is not going overboard and, he doesn't talk for long periods of time. It's pretty much everyone else sort of telling him what's going on and him reacting to that. It feels perfectly restrained, which again was my biggest surprise, right? Because I think that we both were very, uh, very worried that all of a sudden it was going to be, you know, Isaac monologuing about everything going on and on and on. It's like, well, that would then erase the idea of him being this everyman that's thrown into the situation of all of a sudden he has all of the best insight into every single thing that's happening. Um, And, you know, something that you mentioned that leads me into my next uh, topic that I wanted to talk about with Mm. this was the inclusion of side missions, right? So periodically you're going to uncover these missions that at the end of the day, it has you retracing your steps for most of the different sections and whatnot. And there's, of course, there's always going to be a reward at the end of that, but more importantly, And what I think the voice acting really lends to this idea of not rewriting the original Dead Space, but again, reworking, but more importantly, fleshing out elements that Mm. you would want the original game to include. But at the end of the day, what's being included doesn't necessarily, doesn't give you this like earth shattering realization about the characters or the story, but it's just more world building, which I think we're both always appreciative of. And, you know, specifically some of these side quests that focus around, you know, uh, Nicole, right. And fleshing out more of her than her just being this love interest in the original game, right. Which is largely what she was. And here you get to see more about, you know, what her day-to-day life was on the Ishimura, you know, how she's reacting in real time to the spread of the uh, necromorph invasion and these things. And just little touches like that to the story. And again, much like with Isaac, she doesn't really have these long droving monologues. It's kind of just these brief bits of dialogue that give you more insight into her and, you know, why she's notable more than just being Isaac's girlfriend, which is what she was in the original game. Um, And I think also, you know, it fleshes out Mercer, right? Dr. Mercer who's the antagonist more so, you know, granted he still has the same uh, plot for the, you know, the marker and (laughs) the church unitology and all these things. But at the end of the day, you get to see more just of that, you know, character come to life, but also see their influence over others, um, which, you know, again, is what I want from the world building. Well, you know, this is a thing that really struck me, you know, from playing the original to this was it, I could make sense of who was what, 
you know, a lot easier in this game. You know, it's like there were moments in playing the original where I see a character and go, what were they again? You know, especially mm. when you get yeah. to the finale and you get this twisty turn of a couple of characters. You're like, you know, it was very much more telegraphed in one of them and the other not so much. Here it's a bit more consistent. You know, where it's like they're respectful of it. They make it work. They don't question it. They give you more ground to believe what you think you believe. And yeah, everything makes sense, you know. And Mercer is a great example of this because I didn't fucking remember him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah apart from apart yeah, from this disembodied, because mainly because he was a disembodied voice most of the time, telling you, oh, la, la, la. I mean, not too spoilery, but there's a change in like one interaction, you know, which leads to the introduction of an enemy type that is a pain in the ass throughout two games at least, um, where. You know, it used to be he was a disembodied voice, and he, uh, and he, um, that that whole setup. Again, I'm trying not to spoil it. So, but yeah, the change in the way that's set up and the way it plays with that sort of perspective thing. You know, on a side note, this game sort of being portrayed as being like um, God of War in terms of like it's always, you know, it's always you know one continuous shot thing. Um, basically done in the original. You know, it's like there's a couple of shots where it's not, but generally. It is, you know, like that. And even here, it takes a slight deviation here and there. But yeah, it's, it does play with that nicely when it does do it because, um, you know, with the lack of anything on the screen, with the, with that, you get these moments that just surprise you. And, and that was one moment that was like, oh, cool. Yeah. A nice change to the established order. And they've clearly, um, watched the recent Halloween movies for like mad doctors and, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, because uh, that was the first thing I thought of <laughs> saying that one, but yeah, it, it was um, nice to see that characters felt more connected to the events that were going on around them. Yeah, and one other thing in terms of just the side missions, fleshing out character relationships more, but also you know how it comes back to Isaac, right? And you know maybe this was in a text log that I missed in the original game and whatnot, but to your point about you know representing some either moments or, you know, repurposing them, um, you know, there's this whole backstory about Isaac and his mother, right? And mm. how he ended up meeting Nicole and how, you know, her work with trying to free people from the uh, the mind washing, basically, of like the church that yeah. basically become the central antagonist and whatnot. Again, using other characters to flesh out his own backstory without him having to, you know, go on this long tirade about it was just like little moments that, if anything it takes the core concept of the original and it just strengthens it in a way that doesn't feel like it's kind of changing the core identity of anyone. Um, and I think also, you know, just the reworking of those moments, like the one you alluded to, it's changing one character's location in that cutscene originally, right? It was usually mm -hmm. them behind glass and just bringing them more into the scene and being more involved. You still get across the same message about that character and their, these two people's relationship, but it's just so much more cinematic and it's presented in a way that every extra syllable that they utter, it just further reinforces yes. them and their personality. Because like you said, most of the time when I was playing through the original game, I was like, okay, I have no idea who this person is. I have no <laughs> idea why they're notable other than I'm being told that they are the person behind these things. And now 
I have more insight into Dr. Mercer, and I have more firsthand uh, accounts of you know the atrocities that he was committing and just how deeply rooted his fanaticism was. Yeah, um, and I think that that is how you strengthen characters. It's not that you give them more lines of dialogue that completely you know change past events or it gives you some kind of exposition dump that then you're like, well, how does that fit into the context of this event that happens later on? It's just little subtle things. Some of them are just, you know, the directing. Um, and, you know, I was a fan of how when they reworked the scenes, it's either, you know, Isaac's position to an event is either uh, closer or other characters are coming into contact with him in a closer sort of uh, framework, which I think, again, it does a good job of not rewriting but reworking and re-choreographing uh, certain scenes that really make them uh, far more memorable in a big way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the other things that we got asked about you know, on the Discord this week was about the random stuff. Because you know, there's a system in place that basically adapts the way you play to sort of throw your challenge here and there or not, uh, depending on if you're struggling or not. Now, I must say... When I was asked that question, initially sort of hung back and thought, was it there? Like that. And then I sort of thought to these moments in between the ones I knew, you know, because in the first, in the original game, there are choreographed things and they always happen no matter what you do, blah, blah, blah. And there was stuff that happened in section. I was like, is that choreographed or just added or is it added and choreographed? And so I went back and played certain sections again from old saves because I made a bunch of saves as you do when you're reviewing and yeah things would be different depending on how you reacted and how you did certain things and as a system it doesn't always work because sometimes it just throws up enemies at the strangest times and I suppose there's a confidence in the fact that the way horror goes in Dead Space which I think has been made more true with this, which is that just because you see something in front of you, it doesn't mean it was bad at doing, you know, delivering its horror. It's just showing you that not every enemy is just waiting for you to walk past before they pounce on you, which is good because that's where it should be. They, should, they are just roaming the ship and whatever. But there are times where that isn't done great and it sort of takes away from that. But other times, you will expect, oh, enemy here, enemy there, blah, blah, blah. You'll think it's all clear because the music will clear like that. And then the game, whatever its system is, will basically go, you know what? Extra one like that. You dealt with that too easily sort of thing. <laughs> and like that. And all of a sudden you're in the middle of doing a lock or whatever. And suddenly so you, you just see behind your shoulder the, the one of the pints of things and that's it. <laughs> Scare the shit out of you. Yeah. Uh, when it's at its best, it really does just sort of add something to the nature of it because it means that you, know, you can play this game on different difficulties, on different, you know, different ways each time because of the nature of the ship now being more open and just taking, while the story is what it is, you can sort of go around at your own pace doing other things beside the story. It means that you can have these different encounters and have an unpredictability, which, you know, is allowed now with technology being what it is. And uh, yeah, I found that really intriguing and yeah. There's lots of this uh, remake that you know, I was thinking more and more about um, what friction we're going to do with the Amnesia Bunker game. 
you know, in terms of like what they're promising. I was thinking, yeah, this this feels like the bare bones idea behind that, you know, and as a concept, it could really work, you know, if it um, is made more central like that. Sure. I, I can see it feels like it was a, a, a hit point, you know, a, a thing on a, a whiteboard yeah. to say, mm-hmm. oh, we can add this, we can add that. And generally maybe worked after the fact, but it still works. For the most part, I think, I think it just depends on situation or on play and whatever. But one of those systems where really you can't account for everybody and how they play. Yeah, you know, it's hard for me to gauge how much is me misremembering sections and, mm. you know, what is actually this intensity director, <laughs> you know, throwing me a curveball. I will say, though, it, you know, however frequent or infrequent it actually playing a role in my experience is. For a game that is built more with backtracking and done so in a way that's very seamless, I would get I would bet that it plays a bigger role than we think it does. And because yeah. not only, you know, is there a reward in that backtracking, because you know, you have this new security clearance that allows you to access chests and parts of the ship that you couldn't early on, but you know, every time I'm revisiting an area, that tension never, you know, is never lesser than when the first time I was there. I'm always yes. on edge. Uh, you know, it helps playing this game also with headphones. Uh, I can't Oof, stress that enough because man. if you thought the sound design was great in the original, this one is going to make you grind your teeth in a way you haven't. Because, well, you, you know, know yeah, I, I was, yeah, I, I have, um, yeah, as I've mentioned when we were talking about Hunt Showdown, you know, I mentioned about these Razer haptic headphones and how useful they were. And I find for horror games, they are so useful because... I don't get the proper experience. I often feel cheated when you get those sort of like, oh, it's behind you experiences because you can't hear it behind you. You don't have the right thing of it. And it really did help you know, when I could use it. And yeah, it's just, it is up there. Brilliant, brilliant sound design in, in this game, which just brings to the light, you know, when um, all the things that I didn't quite like about the sound design that was praised in the original game, where, it was like, where people were like, oh, you know, it's, constantly giving you tension because there's a steam pipe going off here and blah, 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 and like that. It's like, no, it doesn't. It's, you know, it, things jump out at you with no fucking care in that game. <laughs> right. you know, it, and it still happens here, but it knows to sort of mix it up a bit and um, just have stuff that will happen behind you without you realising it, without the stab of music, without the sound of anything coming towards you. I love that about it because it feels more natural, you know? And the sound design is so much more a point of it. The only reason you notice is because it makes some creature makes a snarl behind you at the last second. You're like, fuck, like that. And, you know, like I said, with my hearing, I can only experience it that way with those headphones. And it is, um, revelatory, you know, to, to have that. And I think, again, this is one of those things where I think it's the benchmark for horror remakes in terms of like really making those moments feel special in a game that you know, De- you know Dead Space was never going for OG Resident Evil survival horror experience ever it, it was more trying to do what mod- you know, survival horror was then in by Capcom standards but with a bit more of the old school stuff in and it absolutely succeeds and the remake just pushes further into the survival horror vibe in terms of like what you can't see could be coming from anywhere like that and you may not even hear it and I love that like that and you may not hear it till it's too late <sighs> yeah it just 
it, it changes the idea of what jump scares are in, in, in this game yeah, compared to the original. Well, it goes hand in hand with the idea that, you know, when people think remake, the first thing they think is, oh, it's a new coat of paint for this game. Mm. But something such as this in raising that benchmark even higher, you know, is the idea that, you know, you have to pay just as much attention to reworking the sound design to work in tandem with that because that sense of atmosphere is so much stronger in this game, not only because of the way it looks and the lighting, but also, you know, that sound design, whether it's, you know, hearing a snarl through a vent or from the next room, but just in walking through the industrial nature of the Ishimura and just, you know, hearing every pipe and every sizzle and every hiss, (laughs) um, it really does make for an unnerving uh, (laughs) retreading, you know, and I think that that's a big part of why, you know, I was not fatigued in returning to, again, Dead Space in such a short period of time, not only because of the way it looks and some of the aesthetical tweaks to certain rooms, even though, you know, the framework is largely the same. At the same time, though, it just makes for such a more immersive type of terror that I didn't necessarily attribute to the original, even though, you know, we mentioned how gross and creepy the original one is. But here it's just so much more heightened in a way that it, you know, you would hope all remakes would. Sure. And I think a big part of that also is just that one of the things that happens with the sound now is that while you have these sort of like trick sounds, you know, going on, you often just have the background noise of screeching of necromorphs and from other parts of the ship. And it always keeps you on edge. You know, like that. It doesn't mean they're there. It means they could be close by. It means they're And my mind was blown at points where I realized that I could hear them because they were coming up on a section I was going to be in, you know, like that. And that's a consistent there again, where it feels less like levels and more like a place in that the sound travels and carries where it should, you know, and enemies are where you expect them to be based on that sound. And it, it was only on those sort of replay bit of bits where I'd be like, shit. Yeah, the reason I can hear that is because it's coming. You know, it's like like that. And not just like the boss things where, you know, it's supposed to be ominous and like they're telling you it's there. But even like normal enemies, like, you know, I'm sure of this, that when you get, you know, when the Leviathan's being introduced, before it even comes up, there are sort of elements of it that you don't realize it's there but it's a different sound in the background of all the screeching and the madness going on. And it's there. And it's like a real, really subtle sound Easter egg, which again, headphones are the best way to appreciate that, that sort of telegraph what's coming on. And it's such subtlety for coming from a game 15 years ago, that was not subtle (laughs) as much as, as much as it was made out to be very subtle in some ways, it really wasn't. And, it, it finds these moments to be subtle and telegraph what is coming without ever telling you. And it's just so smart. And I, I was, to me, that was the most impressive thing of all, that there was this level of detail that didn't need to be there, but it is there. You know, like that. And I think when people play it more and more and more, they will respect that you know and find that to be the key thing of why they love it you know you know it's truly something fascinating to as i said you know when we're talking about ea before it's like it would be so easy to believe it would be the ea of the past who played 
shrug their shoulders and go, let's put Port out. And I said to you back then, it's like, I don't think maybe EA are quite that company anymore. And Activision have kind of taken that role. But, and this just further defines that for me. Because, you know, this is, you know, like the Mass Effect legendary thing. It's respecting the original, adding little things that make those originals better. You know, like, you know, the, 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 uh, <laughs> the vehicle sections in Mass Effect, you know, making sure. them less um, shit, to be honest. And, uh, <laughs> and here, making, you know, certain sections more palatable. It it just is so amazing to see the amount of extra work and love and attention that's gone to understanding what the game was good at in 15 years ago and then applying everything that could make it a better horror game, a better action horror game in 2023. And it's, it, like I said, it blows my mind. It really does. Well, in terms of, you know, making certain sections more palatable, nothing has been made more palatable other than maybe the <laughs> asteroid turret section than um, the reworking of the gravity floating, mm. right? And because in the original, you had these platforms that you basically had to leap between, which, you know, felt very kind of unnatural and just very strange. And it made environmental traversal while dealing with combat of all those little critters that are attacking during those sections, you know, kind of a headache uh, a little bit or just an annoyance. And here it's been completely reworked to the degree that when you enter one of those zero gravity chambers, you now have free reign to maneuver around the environment. And you've got this booster that basically lets you jettison in any direction and you've got free reign over that environment. This not only comes into play with the puzzle solving elements, but also in combat and how you juggle between the two of them. And it feels so much more fluid and so much more natural. Hmm. And at the same time, it gives the game an opportunity to let certain environments open up even more to play around with, you know, all of the technical um, advancements that have come with this current console generation. I think about in the original game, you know, where the Ishimura crashes, you know, that originally was just this strip of of a runway that you run around. Mm. Now you can just free float throughout that entire environment and explore more of it. And you can get to other sections that previously you couldn't have. And it's such a refreshing example of a developer building upon what, you know, I'm sure was their original vision, but due to technical limitations and whatnot, they could never do that. And so to see them bring that environment to life, not only, you know, have an extra room that has like a weapons cache, Mm. but to have that, really be the first stage of allowing the player to experiment with that gravity floating in a way that when you apply that to other sections of the game, specifically the asteroid turret section, which, you know, is probably my least favorite part of the original experience, it plays to the strengths of the remake in repurposing this new advancement in Isaac's abilities to a lackluster section that now is, you know, I think that's like a minute, two minute segment of the game and you just kind of roll with it. And plays to those strengths, and then it goes I mean, back to you know what the player was doing previously. Yeah, I mean the biggest credit you can put to that scene now is that you don't remember it. Yeah, exactly. In quite the same way. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's a nice little spacewalk moment, but um, it's not the oh fuck. It, it, again, it goes back to the. I don't want to take the idea away of a game being a game, you know, like that. And but the original game that was a very gamey moment in it, you know. Like, oh, shoot as many things out there without losing your entire health bar. That's 
Jack 2, you know, for all it might as well be, you know, in terms of um, gameplay sophistication. And it just wouldn't have worked now. You know, I, I don't, it would have been ridiculous to try and do it. And it was one of those moments where it really brought to mind the things that um, Resident Evil 2's remake did wrong with that alligator sequence, where I was like, oh, okay, they could have made this a more fleshed out thing, and they didn't, they simplified it, which seems odd because it wasn't a bad section. And here it's like they took a bad section, it was very gamey, game heavy, still made it a gameplay section, but actually made it more interactive. You know, without having to do the fail state thing as easily. Yeah, I, I think that's the way forward with that. You know, that if you're going to do, make things more consistent with your, your new vision of things, you don't try and take away from what was there. You try and add something. It doesn't have to be the same, but you can do it in a way that still makes you feel like you're part of the action. And that's why I always reference that point in Resident Evil 2 Remake is that because it takes away something that does require your input and makes it into a QT segment, which, yeah, it still bugs me to this day. So, yeah, it's yeah got to be praised for being that kind of moment. But, you know, we talked about that bit, but something I really want to talk about before we get to the end of this is, is the weapons, you know, because... You know, the weapon set in Dead Space and, and its sequels have always been fantastic. You know, I think three for all its foibles, I think the fact that you can combine different bits of different weapons and make them was a really cool bit, um, bit random in some places that sort of offset it, but it, it showed the way forward. But here it, you know, you had the weapons that you always had. But it makes them feel and act different, you know. Um, nowhere is that more clear to me than two guns in particular. One is the pulse rifle. The other is the force gun. Now, originally, I didn't really care for the force gun in the first Dead Space because it felt weak, you know. You know, for a shotgun-type weapon, it didn't feel, really feel effective. You know, the sequel improves that massively. One of my favourite weapons in the sequel is the force gun because it does just smash the shit out of anything that comes close to you and it this is one of those moments where it feels like that you know it has that punch and power and you know now the necromorphs with the level of detail there's you know when you shoot at them you know flesh strips away before you can really like just cut a limb off in some cases you know you can't always just straight cut a limb off unless you hit the right spot and instead it just sort of tears flesh away and i love that little extra detail but when you hit a necromorph with the force gun close, it just, you, know, the, you just see it. The, the detail of the flesh just ripping apart is just majestic as far as gore, yeah, the gore goes. <laughs> and it's like, oh, fucking hell, this is my Dread XP article this week. It's going to make me sound like a psychopath, I know, in terms of how I enthusiastically talk about gore and murder. But mm. still, <laughs> it, it really does just have the extra punch. And, you know, like on PS5, Especially, you know, with the haptic feedback and all that stuff, it's just oh, so satisfying. And I just the reload animation on the force gun, just perfection, you know, like that. But the pulse rifle, you know, like when you have like assault rifle style um, weapons in games, 
they don't really have the punch that you would expect when you think about what they would do, which is firing a bunch of bullets in quick succession at a target, a flesh target. They should rip it to pieces like that. And they don't normally just sort of enemies tend to sort of absorb bullets. That's it. And here it just, you just see the flesh rip apart as it hits it. Again, I'm, clarify i'm not a psychopath i promise you because i'm getting excited about these things that that is the very proof i'm not a psychopath (laughs) but it is just outstanding the extra detail of that and with the sort of kickback you get from the haptic feedback on ps5 it's just magical it just makes these weapons feel alive again and it actually made some weapons feel kind of redundant line gun i didn't fucking use the line gun the whole time i was in it and um the Ripper was also really good to use now, you know, in terms of that, you know, because it just felt like a more useful weapon in terms of like what it did and like really seeing the results of that. You know, I think, you know, being, yeah, you know, I'm a gore hound, you know, I, I can appreciate all kinds of horror, but I really like some good old fashioned gore in there, you know, like that and stuff. And a lot of what Dead Space is is about confronting the unpleasantness of the situation more than it is about spooky scary alien style stuff it's about it's evil dead in space if we're going to be honest because it's about bodies being repossessed by aliens uh to go on murder sprees and drive the protagonist into a crazed state you know it's there and yeah and he basically saws everything up into pieces so yeah, Evil Dead in space. And nowhere is that felt more than with the Ripper, I think, where it just does just feel like being space ash. You know, and, sure. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I th- it's, again, just weird how the difference in weapons really sort of shifted my idea of what the franchise is. Again, like that, to go from that very lazy sort of thing of feeling back in the day of like, oh, well, Dead Space is like Alien and Dead Space 2 is like Aliens, which is just so far from the truth because neither game is as um, sophisticated and refined as that in terms of like going for those haunted house style scares. They are much more like carnival sort of scares, which is more Raimi-esque, but with more of a John Carpenter, naturally, sort of... uh, bleak edge to it and it fits nicely and so yeah it really sort of opened my eyes to that you know to the weapons of all things opened my eyes to a different way of seeing the game um and yeah just any police listening i promise it's just <laughs> it's just a fascination with the change in the game <laughs> that's all it is considering i've only ever played dead space with the plasma cutter before this was you know, it felt it's probably why, you know, I didn't have any fatigue playing through this because of the reworking of the weapons. And mm. just as you've said, you know, just how punchy they are and how much oomph factor they have. And, you know, there's something in that when you get that feedback, you know, when you're trying to, you know, conserve ammunition, you are more cognizant of how many rounds you're firing off. Yeah. Right. It's the type of thing where if it was kind of just felt like a pop gun, I'd be like, well, I'll just keep spraying until I kill this thing. But if anything, getting that feedback of just like, okay, I really have to pay attention and concentrate on how many rounds I'm using between how many units uh, or how many enemies. But, you know, and 
granted, I had to do a little research in this because I didn't use the other guns uh, in the original game. But, you know, they've reworked some of the alt fires for these guns, like for the line gun in particular. They have a uh, like a little trap, basically, that you can yeah. put on the wall um, that is a constant beam of energy that if you, you know, cue it up right, you can make this murder corridor where the xenomorphs just or that sorry, necromorphs just <laughs> kind of aimlessly walk into it and it chops them up. Likewise, the pulse rifle, which, you know, is not only really satisfying and very precise to use, at the same time, it has this mine launcher now, which I think in the original, if you put you literally took the plasma gun and you put it on the ground and it has like a rotating fire or something. Uh, like a no, cloud. I mean, it had something like, like a, a launcher style thing, but it was just like it would explode on impact. Now it's like unless you hit a target dead on, it will just leave like a mine, which did confuse me for a bit because it was like, oh, yeah, okay. it's much like the um, force gun has like a gravitate gravitational well now, you know, sure. like where it pulls things into it that don't necessarily kill it unless you like upgrade things. And we'll get onto the upgrade system in a minute. And yeah, it, it it's good for sort of gathering targets together and just smashing them to pieces like that in an area. But um, yeah, it's, remarkable you know i must say that you know where they've made these tiny tweaks to each weapon from the original games and uh added stuff like the you know having the kinesis stuff where you can pick up things off the floor and smash them at you know like the sharpened limbs of necromorphs you can if you've cut them off you can pick them up and shove them back at them and so i think there's an achievement for it again like there was in dead space too and yeah, it's really cool to have elements like that sort of refine the experience and make it more like the best of Dead Space, you know, with a few modern things to it. Um, but another thing that really adds to these weapons now is that upgrade system. You know, the node system was obviously in place originally where you could make it more, each weapon more powerful, higher capacity, whatever, whatever, and same with your rig. But now you can pick up like upgrades, um, that, um, add extra sort of abilities to these things. So like for the plasma cutter, you can get this thing that makes, you know, each shot adds more damage, you know, or you know, extra ricochets on the ripper or stuff like that, you know, and they're really cool because, you know, again, you still have to, you know, you can get those upgrades, purchase them, but you still have to work your way to them through the nodes. Um, I felt the nodes were a little less generous than they were in the original game as well here. So, I think, which encourages exploration more to go and get them. Yeah, so it was a really interesting system, and it really did just change the way I used the arsenal at my disposal. And the fact you don't have to just keep going back to the fucking save point things to actually get, you know, change your weapons over and stuff like that. You can just change on the fly every time you went, and you can find the weapons in the game world, which is a big change. That was huge, I thought. And I think that furthermore, that encourages exploration, right? It mm. encourages the player to go out of their way to, you know, what I always do is whenever I walk in a new area, I use the um, the objective tracker and whatever direction it points me and I go the other way and I yeah. go and explore. And so I just run to these back rooms because there's the possibility of in addition to, you know, other credits, health, stasis, ammo, whatever, that you can stumble upon one of these new guns that you can use, yeah. I which think- I just love. Yeah, I think only one time did that sort of cost me where I was very curious about what I could see beyond there, which was like there's a door that I could unlock if I shot, you know, when you have those things where you shoot the uh, lock mechanism on the other side of a door, it can unlock a door. And it was like debris between me and that door. I saw it, I shot it, but I'd gone too far into the scenery and I got stuck on the scenery and like the character was like, 
doing fucking very grotesquely weird poses and I couldn't get out <laughs> of that corner. Luckily, late save was you know, not far away, but it was like, sure. that was the only time the game, apart from a crash towards the, uh, on the end boss battle, really ever troubled me. I know people have had trouble with the post-launch patch, fortunately, including Harrison Abbott, who, who's been on the show, where it's, uh, you know, caused uh, more glitches and bugs, which is very odd for the opposite way around to happen. <laughs> I would say, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so it was little moments like that. So it doesn't punish you too much uh, in terms of exploration, but it, it's a bit annoying that you do get those little moments. Um, but yeah, if anything, that comes back to those side missions, right? Where, you know, even if you're the type of person that maybe will go straight to the main objective, right? You have the freedom now with the fact that the Ishimura is more seamless in terms of mm. transitioning between sections. That tram ride can't be more than 15 seconds between zones, yeah. if that. Um, and so the idea of backtracking is not nearly as daunting as it might be if, you know, you had to either endure a long uh, load screen or just the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, if it doesn't have that extra story context on top of the reward that might be ammo or whatnot, you know, that's furthermore incentivizing that backtracking. But yeah. also just the placement of specifically those doors and lockers that require security clearance. I thought that those were placed in, you know, the perfect spots because it's places yeah. that you're going to be backtracking anyways when you're doing the main story. So it doesn't feel always like, oh, okay, I have to go all the way back here. Is it really <laughs> worth it? I would say half of the time they were convenient because I was already in that area yeah. for a main story objective, which I think is smart because it doesn't feel necessarily like, I don't know, like an artificial, uh, adding artificial time onto the experience, yeah, right? That, because it's just more. I mean, there's, yeah, there's a point in the story, obviously, where it starts feeling like well, you can't go back because it kind of goes against the grain of the story where you're being told to hurry and like you don't have much time. It's like, I know that's, games in, inherently where you know you have that sort of weird disconnect where it's like mm. oh the end of world is coming and you're like well, i'm <laughs> gonna spend half the day doing wandering around doing golf or some <laughs> shit you know it's like um <laughs> like props to that by the way the, the little mini game that has like a little uh space space baseball whatever the fuck it is space basketball yeah like that that was <laughs> magic i love that um but yeah it is just a way to do it um so I know we, we've praised it at home at this point, but you know, I gave it nine out of 10. So it means I obviously found something I didn't like about it. So, um, trivial as it may be, but you know, I have to point it out because you know, it's a review and we can't just be like uh, here doing the fucking hallelujah verse for everything we're <laughs> talking about. So my biggest complaints are perhaps it's a bit too visually busy um in terms of like doing a graphical upgrade um there are sections that i feel that in the original version of the game were cleaner and easier to understand for what they were um and look better for not having the extra detail which leads into point two which is it does that thing resident evil 2 remake does which is like how can we make this more horror let's make everything dark now and it's like and so much of it's dark where the original game wasn't. And it's like, things don't have to be dark to be horror. You know, that, and that feels like, you know, that probably feels like the laziest part of horror, of um, the game in terms of sort of remaking it. 
in terms of because the original game was never about that so much about being dark it was more about what the fuck am i going for on this ship and that feels like something that came from the sequel more you know where there was lots of these sections where things would get dark and freaky and whatever but yeah and there's like this effect when in later in the game with the marker where you know it makes your screen all fuzzy and weird and that. but it doesn't have to be that dark you know and I think again the two other games I pointed out in terms of like going around it and being enthralled by exploration of it with Prey and Alien Isolation in terms of the there they are perfect examples of games that are not dark for the most part they are quite light but their horrors are in plain sight and they're still unnerving they still have something about them I think that's the one lesson that maybe could be learned here is that you don't have to hide everything in shadow especially when you've got a game this bloody detailed you know it's like show it off like that because honestly some of the most impressive things in this game are when the light level is high you know like that i i think of the reworking of the leviathan fight in space like that is miles better than the original game like even though that was pretty cool in what it did in the darkness this whole new sort of way of doing it was just it felt more cosmic and over the top and out of touch with what you know Isaac is and going through you know it made him feel like there's every man just basically being thrust into a situation more than this jute you can on mute you know who's just like getting on with everything and doing it like that probably more like doom guy I suppose if you're saying anything where you just sort of just no words do it that's it and like that that was the main criticism you can have about the, the original game uh, so, so yeah they, they are my main takeaways and possibly that it's a bit slow to start you know i think um it doesn't feel quite as um strong but then i think that was a criticism i had the original game as well uh, i think the start wants to be something more shocking and like intense but didn't quite work out for whatever reason uh, for me and it, it kind of still feels the same here. So it's at least faithful, I suppose. <laughs> sure. You know, I th- I don't have as much a problem with the lighting, I think, as you do. But it, there's definitely, I think, within... So I played up to Chapter 7 of mm. the remake. Early on, there's definitely several sections where I was just, like, thrown into this room that now the lights are off and I have to mm. contend with four to five different enemies, which... Yeah, to that degree, I'm like, okay, you want to if you want to include darkness and add to the chaos of what's happening, that's more than fine, right? Yeah. I think that plays into uh, how the power system works, right? Is yeah. that you have to deviate power. One of the options is off, is generally turning off the lights, but at the same time, there's a way to do that to add tension while not uh, obscuring so much of the player's view. Yeah. I think because you know that flashlight's not super effective, but at the same time, you know if you have I don't know, flares or you have, you know, light bleeding in from other sections of the ship. So you have this fractured light, but, mm. you know, the complete emission of light makes those scenes, some of those segments feel um, more difficult than they should be, I suppose, yeah. or overly chaotic to I the think... degree that you end up just running into parts of the environment, yeah. uh, which kind of was a hindrance. Yeah, I think it's actually a general problem. It's not just a game problem. I think when you think of movies as well, or even television, where when image quality has got better and you have like HDR and stuff like that, darkness starts to become a problem. 
if you aren't really thinking about what you're translating to. I mean, mm. Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon have had that uh, notorious episodes where they've not handled darkness properly because they want it to be authentic mm-hmm. uh, rather than thinking, well, no, just day for night can work better, you know, in some cases. Um, you know, a lot of modern horror movies where they, they really just use the dark to hide everything, you know, like that, hide questionable special effects or whatever. And without, and not in a way that they should do, where it's for suspense or to obscure something in the background. It's more just a, no, it's an easy way to hide this, this and this, like that, you know, which is on all levels, you know, from the independent level all the way up to the greatest example of all time, which is Aliens versus Predator Requiem, which is the (laughs) darkest movie ever made. Um, And for good reason, (laughs) it seems. (laughs) So, you know, it it is just a general problem. I Mm. think games especially have struggled that with the HDR thing. It's why any time I play a modern horror game that has HDR options and stuff like that, and the brightness is there, I, I make sure the brightness is quite high. Because straight away I know they're going to throw some dark shit at me, and it's going to be annoying as hell because I can't see. And you know, with my sort of personal thing with the hearing as well, it's like take eyes and ears away from me. It's really not going to work the way you intended. You know, it's like you, you're relying on me hearing the things rather than seeing things and reacting to that, and that's not fair necessarily. I mean, that's a, a me problem, but you know, I'm surely not the only one. You know, in that regard, someone who's in a busy household uh, is going to have the same problem. You know? mm-hmm. So it, it's not going to be a problem for everyone. And some people are going to love that about darkness, but I just, there's too much of it. I think. Yeah. Even thing. still, though, I think that for the masses, I think people could agree that, you know, blanketing an environment in complete darkness is very rarely the move, right? You have to have those sort of uh, light sources somewhat. You know, they could be very uh, restricted or just there being barely any, but at the same time, it helps to, even in moments of chaos, to identify the geography of the location you're in. Mm. Um, And I think that, you know, a lack of that in some of the sections that I've played so far definitely made them a little more chaotic than they should have been. Um, Mm. But at the same time, you know, it at the end of the day, it didn't necessarily... uh, interfere as much as uh my enjoyments as i thought it might yeah i i think that's um a good point to leave it though yeah i mean we <laughs> we spent the first 45 <laughs> minutes talking about dead space uh, pretty favorably and i think that uh we are, you know are overly favorable on it just because oh, yeah. of you know the idea that we were so worried about how ea was going to handle this right we were afraid they were going to take the worst examples of what goes into remakes or you know, begin to change fundamental elements of the original yeah. that make it such a classic. Um, and I think that this was probably the best version of this game we could ever get. And like you said early on, it if anything, it just makes me excited for the future of Dead Space. Like, are we going to get really? Dead Space 2 and 3 get this treatment? Granted, I never even played 3, so that would be a way for me to experience that maybe in a way that was more in line with what they had in mind for it. But at the same time, as you mentioned, the future of Dead Space, what would a new Dead Space look like with all of this, you know, fandom and fervor around the remake and the subsequent sequels mm-hmm. that will hopefully get the remake treatment that could usher in a whole new Dead Space experience. And, you know, we can only hope for that. Yeah, this is it. It's like um, I, I remarked in my review that just what they've done here, 
just makes me think of how amazing uh, Dead Space 2 sprawl would be if it was more open. Because yeah. it, it's a game that of the two that really translates the idea of, and it gives you the illusion of space and like feeling like a a big place that's disorientating because you, you've never, you know, in Isaac's shoes in that game, you, you don't know what it is. You've not really been there before in a, a lucid state. So it feels disorientating in the best way. And, and one of the best parts of that game is just, you know, returning to pastures old and seeing how fucking tiny it feels compared to what you've been to. And if they could replicate all that, Wow, yeah, and that would be amazing. But you know, that that's as much as I would like motive to get to do an, a brand new Dead Space game, or maybe take really deviate from Dead Space Two, because I think you know, while Dead Space need did need a remake you know, to really um, work for modern audiences, Dead Space Two is still fucking brilliant. I, I think I, I think it is the best game of the lot holds up no end you know it is superb i guarantee honest to god you can play this remake and go to dead space 2 and while yeah obviously it's not going to look as good i think style wise it helps it hold up so well and i think it holds a lot of the same qualities now because of the additions to the original that it will feel seamless you know and yeah got it right obviously still being it and voicing isaac Mm. it, it now feels like the perfect continuation and that's exactly what I'm going to do as soon as I finish the remake. Uh, <laughs> hopefully after we're done recording this, I'll go and finish that. And then I already have Dead Space 2 uh, locked and loaded, ready to go. Because I've that, again, was also like my hesitation to go from Dead Space, the original, to then the remake, to then this. But, you know, mm. hearing that it matches up so seamlessly makes me even more excited to just dive right into it. Because like you, that's my favorite in the series. But if anything, you know, it's great to see a remake of the original title just fall so much more in line with the sequel. You know, that was a big thing, like, originally back in the day, going from the original Dead Space to Dead Space 2. The leaps and bounds in terms of, you know, that experience just being so much better is so jarring that for years it was difficult for me to go back. And now having the remake, you know, be something that is as seamless in going into the sequel, I mean, that's really fantastic to hear and i can't wait to experience that for myself fantastic yeah but uh i look forward to chatting next week with you about horror bites we're going to dive into a whole slew of indie little bite-sized horror titles with a special guest who's returning to the show and uh yeah as always neil it's a pleasure chatting horror with you for safe room until the next time thank you for listening to another episode of safe room if you enjoy the show please rate us on itunes and follow us on twitter at safe room pod for show updates you can also join our Discord channel, Safe Room Podcast, to chat with us and other horror fans about the genre we all love. You can also drop us an email over at saferoompod at gmail.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on a game we're going to cover. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next Monday. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.